Hey everyone, Stephen here. Being an editor and a podcast producer does come with its perks. One of them is giving you, our listeners, a good deal. And I've got a really good deal for you. How about 20% off your registration to our Solar Summit Mexico in Mexico City on February 13th and 14th? Mexico is the hottest Latin American solar market right now, with prices coming in way below the average price of fossil fuels. So we're going to match those prices by giving you, our podcast listeners, 20% off registration. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code podcast at checkout. You can also follow the link in the show notes. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code podcast at checkout. And let's meet up in Mexico City to talk solar at GTM's Solar Summit Mexico. Hope to see you there. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Sea Power Energy Management. Sea Power provides custom demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. Sea Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs. And if you think about it, the greenest energy is probably the energy you don't use. SeaPower also offers integrated solutions like storage plus demand response and other tools to help you achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets. SeaPower is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Find out more about SeaPower's demand-side energy management solutions at SeaPowerEnergyManagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. There are 60,000 large-scale wind turbines in America. That means over a million and a half households are located five miles from a turbine, and they're actually inching closer to homes on average. So how do those machines impact our property values, our soundscapes, and our quality of life? The Lawrence Berkeley Lab has a bunch of research on the impact of wind turbines on our lives, and we're going to dive into it. Then we're going to talk about the president's State of the Union address. Trump declared an end to the war on American energy, whatever that means. We'll talk about what he thinks he means by that and what it actually means. And finally, Massachusetts chooses the Northern Pass Project to supply 17% of its electricity with Canadian hydro. Of course, there's controversy. We'll dig in. Here to dig alongside me are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is a partner at 38 North Solutions. She's in Washington, D.C., fresh off her trip to Davos at the World Economic Forum. Catherine, how are you? I assume happy that you don't have to trudge around in six feet of snow? Yeah, definitely. It's so good to be stateside and just schlepping around for clients. Um, although it was it was really great to be there and I learned a ton and I was really, really busy. So it's always a, a really good experience. Jager Shah is the president of Generate Capital. He is in Washington, D.C. as well, just outside Washington, D.C. Jager, how are you? I uh, I understand that you're doing a little bit of politicking these days. Yeah, we're hosting a fundraiser for uh, Ben Jalhus, who is the former head of the NAACP. So he's running for governor of Maryland. He's got a huge green jobs agenda. So looking looking to support my climate hawks. Great. Well, just to be clear, uh, I am a journalist and editor, so I make uh, no endorsements of any candidates. But Jigger, of course, can endorse any candidate he wishes. I want to get that out of the way. Um, let's talk wind development now. I'm sitting here in my house, my new house, tucked away in an East Boston residential neighborhood. It's super quiet. You know, around me sits an airport. 
a bunch of gas storage, a highway, and port infrastructure. Um, I'm literally surrounded by industrialization. Luckily, I'm kind of tucked away, so it's not too loud. But, you know, I could definitely hear this din of activity around me. So if a large-scale multi-megawatt wind turbine were installed within a mile or two of my house, I wouldn't notice it much. But if I were in a rural area or out in the suburbs, it would probably be a bigger deal. And in fact, most wind projects are built in rural areas, places where there's greater sensitivity to how these machines impact quality of life. So now we have decades of experience with exactly that, how wind influences property values, soundscapes, view sheds, and community planning. And we chose this subject this week because the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab is releasing a series of reports over the coming months about the massive amount of data it's cataloged on the subject, and it caught our eye. So we're going to explore what it tells us. Catherine, you tuned into um, this first in a series of webinars this week on whether wind turbines make good neighbors and the Berkeley Lab researchers analyzed attitudes from 1,700 random people living near wind turbines around the country. What did they find? Yeah, super interesting. And I just want to give a shout out to Ben Hone and Joe Rand for this at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, um, the Electricity Markets and Policy Group, for this analysis of 1,705 wind neighbors. And, you know, one thing is that because of the progress in wind energy, the distance in between homes and communities and wind turbines has been consistently decreasing. That said, what they found when they did their study was that support has been consistently high um, in North America, that the NIMBY, the not in my backyard explanation for resistance, really doesn't hold water. Um, that socioeconomic impact, so whether you're paid yourself or your community is somehow compensated, is very much tied to acceptance. Um, that sound and visual, although, you know, if you like whether it looks, if you think it makes too much noise, it's really tied to opposition, but not necessarily, does not have necessarily anything to do with distance from the turbines. Interestingly, there were no statistical differences based on education, income, gender, or race. Um, they did not ask political party because they were worried that they would get hung up on during these during these calls uh, because that's always contentious. But um, it was pretty interesting that there is not a correlation between you know how close a turbine is necessarily and whether someone is for or in opposition to wind. It's much more based on whether you've really done your homework, made sure that communities are compensated or benefit in some way, and that they're included in part of the planning process. Or if you really just want a payday. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, like you had those two two homeowners in Vermont that sued Sun Edison First Wind for over two years because they just wanted someone to pay above market for their house. I mean, the same thing is true for a lot of people who complain, right? They just, this is like sort of a way to get a $100 million project to pay for, you know, buying them out. And I would say, honestly, First Wind did a really good job of building relationships with communities. They listened to folks. They made adjustments. Some of their projects are pretty interesting. You can't really see them uh, from the road at all. So, you know, they they did work really hard to make sure that they got community acceptance. I don't know that we can paint everybody's motivations with that same paintbrush jigger. I mean, maybe some people are looking for a payout, but this is such a complicated matter, right? You know, people who may be traditional environmentalists or 
supporters of renewable energy are often the folks who oppose some of these projects, particularly when they're on sensitive lands. But what this data does show us is that you know, the vast majority of people are often not opposed or are not unhappy with the project after it's built. Also, what they found was that, and they asked these residents who lived within a half a mile of the project and were there before the project was constructed, whether they would prefer to live near the wind project or solar, natural gas, coal, or nuclear plant. And solar and wind came out about equal, like people like to be near either of those, but much preferred wind to natural gas, coal, or nuclear by far. Yeah, because there's no negative emissions coming from a wind or solar farm, right? I mean, the thing that I find to be so striking about this is like the reason why we have these results, which I think are very gratifying, is that we've spent a shit ton of money on on public relations and local communities. I mean, when I, when Sun Edison built the very first multi-megawatt solar farm in the United States in Alamosa, Colorado, we sent somebody to the town a year before construction. To talk to everybody, that person went to town meetings every night of the week. There were two people who hated the project, and we worked um, to educate them for nine months so that they would support the project. We wanted 100% support. Yeah, but this is still pretty new. I mean, you know, eight or nine years ago, if you talk to a lot of developers, they were trying to figure this out and had a lot of negative experiences because they just assumed that developing a renewable energy project would gain a lot of acceptance. And this is just like any other type of industrial development. You have to engage the community from the get-go and make them feel like they have some kind of stake in it. And and that wasn't always the case. I remember doing panel discussions with developers, yeah, roughly, you know, nine, ten years ago, and many of them shared horror stories because they were learning on the fly about how to develop big projects in communities where there wasn't going to be acceptance outright. They have to act just like any other commercial or industrial developer. Yeah, and what was interesting was that the distance from the project made people less neutral, but it didn't mean that it made them more negative. It really did depend on the outreach, you know, how how that was all handled and the perception of the project, not necessarily the distance from the project. Yeah, I know that makes uh, and that makes sense. And I, I think that I mean the reason I get so worked up about it is because I mean in my entire career and even now, right, where we're buying anaerobic digesters and lots of other equipment that that is not as easily accepted by the community, you know, we spend a lot of time and money on community um, outreach, and it just it, it it's one of those things where you know recently Gatehouse Media, which owns 130 newspapers. Um, you know, did a hatchet job on, you know, on how much neighbors hate uh, living near wind farms. And they basically just interviewed the people who were complaining about it. Um, and, you know, Clean Technica did a good job of, you know, going through step by step what Gatehouse Media did wrong and how it didn't meet journalist standards. But that Gatehouse Media piece was replicated across right-wing blogs around the country. And I, I do think that it makes all of our jobs more difficult when you've got folks who've, you know, read something negative on their blog of choice and, um, you know, and, and haven't read the facts for themselves. I do feel like this has changed, though. These stories used to be a lot more common, and they are far fewer and between now, right? Like, 
this is this seems to be an anomaly these days. Well, we've just overwhelmed um, the issue, right? I mean, I think that we've done a pretty good job of trying to stay, you know, nonpartisan. And when you think about where these projects are going, they're generally in redder districts. And and you know, the wind industry alone is paying like eight hundred million dollars a year now in in land lease payments every year to local residents, right? I mean, it's just it's such a huge benefit to the communities that we serve because, you know, when you think about our investment in those communities as a percentage of total investment in those communities, we're very large percentages of the total investment in the, those communities every year. Yeah. And that those payments and the increased tax base can go to schools and community centers and libraries that really make a difference in the community. I think it's worth revisiting what you outlined, Catherine, and that is there's really no clear demographic trend here. You know, there's no class or age or race impact on how people feel about uh, the impact of, of wind turbines near their houses. Although I would be interested to know the political influence here, but my guess, given what we know about where these projects are cited, is that there's probably not a major political influence. But it would be, it would be cool to understand that as well. But there's really no demographic influence. It's just straight bread and butter stuff. It's are you communicating this project from the get-go? Are you going to community forums and holding community forums? Are you giving people some kind of emotional or financial stake in the project? It's like really common sense stuff. And when people feel like a piece of the process, the any opposition goes way down. Oh, yeah. I would give an example of two projects that are fairly close to each other in Vermont. One is the Lowell project that is on a ridge that Green Mountain Power built. And the folks that are in that northern kingdom town of Craftsbury just hate it because they were not really part of the planning process. They didn't feel like they had buy-in. And it's very stark against the ridge. That's all they can see when they look outside in some of their minds. Versus the Sheffield project, which first wind developed, that is called a like a birthday candle um, the way they've cited it, which is around a mountain where you can't even see it from the road. And they had tons of town hall meetings and got acceptance from the community over time. So those two projects are in stark comparison as to just community acceptance. And my sense is it's based on the process of development. It's also proof positive that our industry needs people with a lot of different backgrounds, right? I mean, people that have, you know, that reflect the community and that look like the community, but also people that, you know, have these skills around public relations or, or other things. It's not just engineering. And so, I mean, it just shows what it looks like to have a large, vibrant industry with all sorts of skills and requirements needed uh, for the industry to be successful. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Power Energy Management. Here's an energy question for you. What happens when you combine DR with DER? Well, you get a way to save on energy costs, keep the grid healthy, and earn revenue at the same time. Power has partnered with STEM, the national storage experts, to bring you a leading-edge program that integrates demand response with AI-powered energy storage. It lets you curtail your grid energy use with usually little to no disruption day-to-day, not to mention the savings and earnings that can be realized. 
You're happy, the grid's happy, and your customers are happy. Storage plus DR is just one of the demand-side energy management solutions that CPower provides to customers operating in all of the nation's open energy markets. Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. That's cpowerenergymanagement.com. Let's go to the State of the Union now. Oh, Lord, what a state we're in. On Tuesday night, President Trump gave his first State of the Union address, and we're going to compare the actual State of the Union with his version of the State of the Union, at least when it comes to energy. He had only one thing to say about energy explicitly. We have ended the war on American energy, and we have ended the war on beautiful, clean coal. As he delivered this line, the camera quickly panned to Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who stood up with a proud smile on his face. The president spent more time on infrastructure during the speech. He called on Congress to pull together a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, and, and that will definitely involve energy in some way. He also spent some time on trade, reiterating his desire to renegotiate new deals with countries. Again, no specific energy mention here, but certainly an allusion to his desire for trade penalties against countries like China, which he just imposed uh, solar imports on, countries around the world, actually. Let's start with the supposed respite in the war on American energy and that beautiful clean coal. Catherine, the president is implying here that coal is going to flourish once again. What's the reality right now in America? Yeah, so he also seems to not understand that clean coal is a term that is separate from just coal. I think he thinks all coal is clean and beautiful, which, you know, that that's his opinion. Um, it's definitely not happening. Uh, he's not keeping plants open. In fact, they continue to retire. But I think what you can take from the way this whole thing was set up and the lack of policy that he really discussed on energy is just by looking at the tenor of the whole speech and the the New York Times Daily podcast did a really good kind of analysis of this, which is that he told a bunch of stories. He had people there around which he told a lot of individual stories. He did not tell a story about energy. He did not have a coal worker there who was brought in to have a story told about him. He just really kind of skimmed over it. So the things that he did not mention, he didn't say anything about offshore drilling. That's been a big policy push for them. There was nothing about the solar tariffs, as you mentioned. There, There were no other mentions of any type of energy resource. There was no climate mention. So this was just not part of his, neither part of his narrative, nor was it part of a policy push. He really did not talk much about policy. And if you think about the infrastructure piece, he did say, um, I want to have a 1.5 trillion investment in infrastructure, which is half a trillion dollars more than he had been pushing before. He'd been pushing a trillion dollars. That's really about 200 billion of federal funds. The rest he wants to come from state and private investment. You know, so he did push on infrastructure, but he was really light on actual policy positions. Yeah. So two things there. One is this, the coal narrative or the lack of a coal narrative and then the infrastructure plan. Let's go to infrastructure second. It is extraordinary to me that the president basically mentioned coal once. He spent so much time in coal country um, or talking about coal on the campaign trail and has since then talked a lot about coal or had people in his administration talk about being advocates for the coal industry and bringing the industry back. And what we saw was a walk away from the narrative that he was going to bring coal jobs back. 
And, and that's probably because there really isn't a good story to tell about coal jobs coming back in this country. Well, and in point of fact, it's, it feels like coal jobs are actually leaving faster under this president than the previous one. I mean, in the eight years that Obama was in office, we retired about 55 gigawatts of coal. In 2017 alone, there were 22 gigawatts of coal-fired power plants that that were announced to be shutting down or converted. And so it's, it's one of those weird things where, um, where I, mean, I guess it's very typical of this president where he uses rhetorical flourishes, but doesn't actually have any policies to back up those flourishes. This is the bigger question. The coal industry is representative of a lot of these struggling communities around the country that have seen manufacturing jobs shed over the last few decades. And the president has said he's going to bring jobs back. And of course, you know, his his claims for bringing hundreds or thousands of jobs back are both dubious um, and, and, and often wrong, but it, it creates a perception that things are getting better and perception really matters in politics. And so if you support the president and even if around you things aren't, aren't getting better, you know, you may, you may overall believe that the country is improving and soon that that, that change will come to you. But eventually you do run into reality and not much is changing right now in the coal industry and it, and it won't change and it will get worse and it will accelerate. And we're going to see, you know, uh, tens of gigawatts of projects kicked offline here soon. And, you know, we saw yet another dip in coal consumption last year in the United States. And we only saw incremental increases in coal production from mines, all coal that's going overseas to Asia because there was an uptick in demand. So at some point, People are going to look around them and say things are not getting better as this president claimed because his his ideas, uh, flimsy ideas for bringing jobs back to these communities is just not going to meet the reality of this rapidly changing economy. And so for me, um, looking at what happens with how this president messages coal and how these communities react and respond and the importance in this political conversation is representative of a lot of the rural communities that have really suffered um, and how they react and respond to this president. But Stephen, I wouldn't put too much stock in what he said or didn't say in the State of the Union. He had different goals with that speech. Look at what they're doing in agencies. So how they're rolling back on regulation at the EPA and how they are continuing to push coal in the Department of Energy and cutting research on clean energy. So they are, he is implementing policy in the agencies and uh, his cabinet is implementing policies that really do favor fossil fuel, especially coal. So just because he didn't mention it in the state of the union, I don't think we should you know, lose sight of the ball here. Right. But I mean, Scott Pruitt's Oklahoma is moving into the number two position in the country behind Texas in wind power next year. Right. I mean, it is going to be surpassing California next year. So it's at some point, like, I don't know that any of this stuff matters for our clean energy, you know, sort of issues. I think that the state of the union is really quite strong for our industries. I mean, I think solar has never looked better. Battery storage, anaerobic digesters, electric vehicles, wind, you know, folks are really doing well out there. So let's talk about infrastructure. Jigger, you really zeroed in on infrastructure. Um, uh, we can talk about the politics of whether an infrastructure bill will actually pass this year or even get developed, but you think it's this really extraordinary opportunity. Explain. Well, you know, 
Jay Faison has been lobbying pretty hard um, on the the right um, side of the aisle, and you know, there's a group that he's funding called the Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. Charles Hernick, um, who ran for Congress actually in the last cycle, um, works there and penned an op-ed in Fox News. Um, you know, I think when you look at the data. If the federal government's only going to provide $200 billion and wants to support $1.8 trillion of infrastructure investment, the only group that really knows how to do that right now is the clean energy sector. Like We're the only group that uses federal tax credits and federal bits of money, whether it's a new market tax credit or the clean renewable energy bonds or all sorts of esoteric things that the government likes to throw away, USDA loan guarantees and convert them into projects, right? And so I think that I don't really know that the president knows that that's what's going to happen. But I think if an infrastructure bill passes, the clean energy industry will be the one that is in the best position to utilize the federal support. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that investments in grid, whether it's smart grid, transmission, those are going to be far better returns for private investment and state dollars than like roads and bridges that it's just really hard to get private capital in for that. I would think Jigger. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to build toll bridges everywhere and I can't imagine that people are going to be happy if they have to pay $17 and 40 cents to just go visit their neighbor on the other side of a bridge. Um, So like, I I agree with you. I, I think that, you know, I don't think he mentioned energy much at all in the State of the Union. I think it was like two sentences. But my sense is this infrastructure bill will be converted into an energy bill. Yeah, it seems like it would be a great opportunity to really help move things forward. My, And in fact, there was a group, the Problem Solving Caucus, I think I mentioned this before, that has um, put forward a paper on infrastructure that's totally bipartisan. There are in, in both chambers, different efforts to move infrastructure um, forward. Couple of issues. One is it costs a lot of money um, and it's hard to know where they're going to get it because they just spent a bunch of it on a big tax cut. And the other thing is trying to get everybody to the table together because the last thing Democrats certainly want to do is hand the president a huge victory in another way. So I think it's going to be really hard to get people to come to the table on something like this. Not that we're not going to still keep pushing it because I think from a public policy standpoint, it's a great idea. The issue is like, how far apart are we on really coming together on getting something over the finish line? I mean, I'd say it differently. I think this Republican Congress has made it clear that they don't give a damn about budget deficits. So I'm not too worried about that. And the other piece of it is I'm more worried the Republicans don't want to spend money on infrastructure. I mean, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have made it very clear that this is not a priority for them. And so I think the Democrats find that it's more of a priority for them than it is for the leaders of the two you know, chambers of the Congress. Yeah, but Chairman Schuster of Transportation and Infrastructure really does care about this and would like to have a legacy to leave behind. And so he's going to be pushing it. He will push on his leadership. You're right. Ryan O'Connell are not super interested, and yet they want to also make sure that they keep their president happy. So, uh, you know, I think they would they would go along if they had their their ground force and their committee chairs caring. Why don't we turn to some other more local politics? Actually, 
this is more than local politics. This is regional and and international politics because it it goes it goes over to Canada. So um, this is actually a pretty broad topic that we're going to be talking about. But it's local to me here in Massachusetts because my home state is set to get more than nine million megawatt hours of renewable energy all from one source. So why is that causing such a political stir? Well, that source is Canadian hydropower from northern Quebec via the proposed Northern Pass transmission line. And if you recall, we talked with public radio reporter Sam Evans-Brown about the mixed history of that power, a history filled with land conflicts, trampled indigenous communities, um, and a very controversial power line. Coincidentally, David Roberts at Grist had a great piece this week on the difficult trade-offs that we need to make to address climate change, and he mentioned the Massachusetts deal because there are so many groups that you would assume would might be for it uh, against this deal. So we published a piece this morning as well from Julian Spector exploring these trade-offs and other political elements of the deal. Go access both of those in the show notes. We'll put them in our reading list. Mass lawmakers passed a bill a couple years back mandating the state's utilities procure thousands of megawatts of renewables that also included an offshore wind target and a storage target. So to hit the goals set out in the bill, a request was sent out to the industry for bids. And there was a commission to evaluate those bids, which included the three um, major distribution utilities here in the state. And nearly 50 bids came in. This week, the governor chose one project, the Northern Pass Project. Uh, and if built, it would send hydro down from northern Quebec through the mountains of New Hampshire to Massachusetts, accounting for 17% of our yearly consumption. So so yay for that. Um, but it really depends on where you stand. And, and that's also if the Northern Pass transmission line gets built. Jigger, what's the calculation that Massachusetts is making by selecting this bid? Well, I think they're supporting President Trump, right? I mean, didn't he like talk about the Northern Pass when he was running for for office? Um, Did he? The Gosh, I don't remember that. I think he was talking about the the transmission line, right? That all the people in New Hampshire were were against. Um, yeah, you know, look, I think that I think that this is where you draw a very clear distinction between climate hawks and environmentalists. I think environmentalists for a long time you know, like saw projects in front of them and, you know, basically opposed them or supported them, right? In this particular case, they're talking about a transmission line that they think is going to hurt the White Mountains, but also they think it's hydropower that's come from indigenous populations, which we discussed earlier um, on this podcast. And, you know, and for many climate hawks, we're looking at this saying, you know, when the Vermont Yankee nuclear plant shut down, emissions in the Northeast actually went up. Right. And so I'm tired of us always sort of like building more solar, building more wind and then shutting down nuclear plants or other things and actually having emissions go up. Right. I mean, these hydro projects are all incremental. They have a ton of excess water sitting behind the dams in uh, these places in Canada. And so this is all incremental production that would not have been produced if Massachusetts doesn't support the line. And so I'm okay with that. I'm okay with more clean energy. Yeah, and the nu- the Pilgrim nuclear plant that's set to close is 690 megawatts or 5.12 terawatt hours a year. This Northern Pass project will provide 9.45 terawatt hours a year, so just about double what Pilgrim did. So if we want to replace the Pilgrim plant with distributed renewables, as some advocates have suggested, um, that's a lot of land use in Massachusetts. 
um, clearly, you know, we want a diverse range of resources, but what you're doing is just making up for existing generation and you're running in place. And this is what many nuclear proponents have warned about as these plants start tr- coming offline, these, these retiring nuclear plants. You can, re- yeah, you can replace them with renewables. Like there is definitely a, feasible economic and technical way to start localizing renewable energy to make up for lost generation from nuclear power plants. But you're basically throwing all your money and energy into running in place. So, uh, you know, we, we are going to be far behind our short-term commitments for the, for the international climate agreement, our voluntary targets. Basically, you just can't do even the modest things that we want to do with plants retiring unless you make hard decisions like this. It's a hard decision, right? There's a long history here that we grapple with on this podcast. I'm from New Hampshire, and I understand why it's potentially so damaging for people to see a transmission line go through the White Mountains. And this line, of course, is now evolved, and a lot of it's going to be undergrounded. I understand why people are opposed to it, but there are some just deep unsettling trade-offs that we need to make in order to make up for these nuclear retirements and to expand our renewable energy goals. And I, I just think that this is the perfect encapsulation of that series of decisions that we're going to need to make over the coming years. Well, and this was a statute that was passed in the Massachusetts legislature that that really set it up this way where hydro was included, that it was a a large RFP, that it was not meant for smaller resources, which actually kind of leads you to think, why don't we make sure that all of our policies are much more integrated with larger and smaller facilities? But this was the way the statute was written. So I don't, I don't think there was much of a choice in, in what kinds of projects were going to be proposed with this. I also think your broader point, Stephen, is that, I would go one step further and basically say that we had talked earlier about Bill McKibben's article about how we need to be on a war footing um, around, you know, this switchover uh, to clean energy. And I think when you're on a war footing, you look at everything that's available to you, right? You look at keeping the nuclear plant open, you keep, you look at putting a lot more small clean energy facilities um, in place on a distributed basis, and you look at bringing in large transmission lines from a place that is blessed with a lot of hydropower in Canada. And and I think you do all of it at the same time, and you try the best you can to decarbonize. I also would point out that the part that I enjoy the most is that we're not building gargantuan amounts of additional natural gas pipeline capacity, which will just become a stranded cost in the Northeast, right? I mean, with the most recent cold snap, a lot of folks have been talking about how we need more natural gas capacity and that that would allow um, folks to build, you know, to produce more natural gas power and not use the oil-fired power plants. But, you know, the oil-fired power plants are such a small percentage of the overall production, and that's not what we need to do. What we need to do is actually, um, you know, bring in hydro, keep the nuclear plant running, and really decarbonize And I don't think this is going to slow down distributed resources there either. I think those will continue to flourish. Oh, for sure, because that's all localized policy that Massachusetts has embraced wholeheartedly. There's no way that that's going to slow down. This is in addition to that policy. They're certainly not mutually exclusive. I guess the big concern is how the contract was chosen, um, whether the Northern Pass project will get built. And um, if this kind of takes other options off the table for Massachusetts, so let's let's assume that they're waiting for, you know, the Northern Pass project to get built and 
it sort of extends this timeline and they're waiting, waiting, waiting. And all of a sudden it just, it's clear that Northern Pass is not going to get constructed. All of a sudden Massachusetts has to reevaluate how it's going to get those thousands of megawatts of um, clean energy. And that seems to be one of the bigger concerns from folks. Um, not necessarily the, the impact, it's the risk, the political risk that this project doesn't get built. Well, look, that happens. But again, this is about, you know, what we need to do as climate hawks is we have to like actually figure out a way to get these projects built, right? I think I've been saying this ad nauseum on this podcast around the fact that America needs to learn how to do big things again. And one of the big things it needs to do is to build large transmission lines. We are not going to be at 90 plus percent clean energy in this country unless we can move power around the country. And, you know, I think what this transmission line is doing is saying, actually, let's increase the balancing area to include Canada, which I think is fine. I mean, I think that we do need to do that. We need to like, we need to figure out how to actually approach this problem at scale and attack it at scale. All right, listeners, what do you want to know? We've got some things that you may not know. Catherine, what is your story? Tell us something we may not know. Yeah, so this is something that I picked up when I was at the World Economic Forum. Um, there is something called the Global Goals for Sustainable Development that's a public-private partnership on with 17 goals. Not all of them have to do with energy. Some of them are poverty, water, gender equality. There's also a goal on affordable and clean energy. And so this Global Goals group has been working hard to make sure that all of these different goal areas are improved. There is also a global goals cast, which is a podcast. And there is a podcast I would just refer folks to. It's the first in what I think is going to be a series. And I was able to have dinner with a group, including the polar explorer, Robert Swan. Robert Swan is the only person who's hiked to both the North and South Pole. He did the South Pole 30 years ago. And over time has tried to figure out how is climate impacting, especially the South Pole, because it is so critical uh, to our freshwater and to the way our planet operates. So he took another trip, and this was the first um, renewable energy-powered trip to the South Pole. He took his son, Barney, who's 23, and they taped it. They had cameras with them in extremely harrowing circumstances, they also taped podcasts constantly. They had, and so the first podcast you'll see on Global Goals Cast um, is super interesting. It they really explain how the climate has changed the conditions in the South Pole, and I, I would just recommend it as a really, um, really interesting and something that I'm interested in following because I think they will continue to do more on that topic. It was only about a 30 minute podcast and they didn't really tell the complete story, but it's it's definitely worth checking out. I will subscribe to that and add another podcast to my already very crowded feed, but sounds super interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Jigger, what's your story? So, you know, I, after the, the State of the Union address on Tuesday night, um, Bernie Sanders and Bill McKibben and many others uh, came together um, in D.C. to uh, to promote a fossil few fossil free USA, and uh, it was a pretty amazing lineup of speakers and other people. The Howard University Gospel Choir, you know, all sorts of you know folks coming together to reconfirm their commitment to a fossil fuel free uh, country. And I do think that you know while I don't know that I'm as you know sort of um, 
environmentalist, I would say, as many of the folks that spoke there. I am, uh, I am like completely like for figuring out how to solve climate change. And I think that these guys, you know, took a bold stance um, to bring all these folks together and bring uh, attention to this issue. I am reading a book that I wanted to share that is not directly related to energy, but is a, quite an interesting look at the online subcultures that have gotten us to where we are today in politics. And I thought it was appropriate given the state of the union conversation that we had. The books that I'm reading, the book that I'm reading now is called Kill All Normies, Online Culture Wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the Alt-Right. And it is an exploration of the online subcultures that developed as a reaction to, you know, the perceived overly PC liberal culture and how those online subcultures mix together uh, to create what we commonly refer to as the alt-right. But that term just doesn't do it justice. It's this strange mix of subcultures. And the book is a mix of history and media critique in what kind of feels like a long-form essay style. It is so compelling. It's a topic that I'm just particularly interested in. And should kind of inform how we think about this moment. It's it's proof that many of us don't really understand the strange corners of the web that have had an extraordinary impact on our politics. So again, it's called Kill All Normies. And in my opinion, it's required reading to understand this era. Um, go check it out. And uh, I've really enjoyed the book. And that's it, folks. Thanks for joining us per usual. Uh, you can find us on any podcast platform of your choice and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We do appreciate it. We do appreciate emails, too, if you have suggestions on what to cover on the show, podcast at greentechmedia.com. I'm Stephen Lacey with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, my co-hosts. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.